Father, thank you for this chance to look at your word. Lord, this morning's story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Lord, we're asking that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. That this wouldn't just be a story that we look at and we are filled with wonder at what you did. But that it would be a story that stirs in our heart a determination to seek you in the same way. To allow you to work in our hearts in the same way. Father, please speak to us through your word. Make it real. Make it practical. May it change our lives. May it change my life. Father, we just open our hearts and invite you to speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that this is something you're wanting to do because you love us so much. Lord, we look forward to hearing your voice this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It was a fierce storm. Much fiercer than the storm yesterday, I imagine. I don't know how big the clouds must have been or what the thunder must have been like on that day. But they were there on the ridge. And suddenly everyone's attention was drawn to a lone figure who was standing like a silhouette on that ridge. Now this man should have been exhausted by this point. And I imagine that going through his mind must have been all kinds of different emotions from from that that drain of, of adrenaline that had been pumping through his veins to the tiredness of having been up the entire night proceeding to the the intensity of wanting to see God do something more maybe you felt some of those emotions maybe you've been at that place even in the past week maybe you feel that way right now you see as he stood there on that ridge He had a promise of God in mind. God had made a very clear promise to him that he knew that he could take to the bank. He knew that he could rely on this promise of God and that this promise was so powerful that God would do anything in order to make sure that it came true for him. Go with me to Joshua chapter 10 where we pick up this incredible story. It's a story that is unlike any other story in the Bible. It's a story of one of the greatest miracles, I believe, in the Bible that came in answer to prayer. It's a story of the greatest, I believe, physical miracle in the entire Bible. Joshua chapter 10. This is just a few chapters after Joshua has been given leadership of the children of Israel. This young man who had been a servant of Moses, who had walked in Moses' footsteps, who had been kind of in the shadow of Moses until suddenly it was apparent that Moses wasn't going to lead the children of Israel into the land of Canaan anymore. Joshua took over control and led them through the the Jordan River. He led them around Jericho and the walls of Jericho fell down. He led them to conquer the city of Ai. Amazing things happened as Joshua took over leadership. But suddenly Joshua faces an incredible challenge. And this is partially due to the fact that he hadn't consulted with God when the Gibeonites had come to him and they had pretended like they had come from a long journey and that they weren't close by and they had asked, well, please just have mercy on us because we are 
from a far distant place and we've heard how wonderful the Israelites are. And he'd bought the lie without going to God and asking him what to do and they had made a league or a treaty with the Gibeonites. Well, suddenly, in chapter 10, we hear about a king named Adonai Zedek. Interesting name for a king that wasn't very righteous, and yet his name has to do with righteousness. But here he is, a king who is not happy with the people of God, and he calls for four other kings, and these five kings come together and they say, look, we've got problems on our hand. Jericho fell. Ai fell. Now Gibeon, this great city with these mighty people, has, has made a treaty with the Israelites. We're in big trouble. So let's get all of our armies, all five armies together. We'll form one massive army and we'll start by going to take out the city of Gibeon. So they band together and they're marching to Gibeon. Now Gibeon immediately sets a message to Joshua saying, we need help. You've got to come and help us because we're about to get crushed. And remember, we're now friends. We made this treaty, so please come help us. So we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 7. It says, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. When it says that he ascended from Gilgal, we're going to find that that's exactly literally the path that he took. I don't know if you've ever gone on a long afternoon hike, or actually this one would have been like a, a longer than you could do in an afternoon, but it was a long ascent that we're going to find that they go on. Verse 8, though, tells us why he did this. In verse 8, this time he's consulted God and found out what God wants him to do, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. Don't fear this massive army, this biggest army that you have faced so far. Don't be afraid of this army, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua hears this promise from God and says, Great, God has delivered every single one of them into our hands. Not a man of them will stand before us. Let's go. Verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Don't just read over stories in the Bible quickly and, and, and miss the point of what's going on here. Joshua leaves Gilgal and goes to Gibeah to fight against this massive army. Now, Gilgal was about 16 and a half miles away from Gibeah. I don't know how many of you like to go on 16-mile hikes, or 16-mile runs for that matter. But how about a march all night long that's 16 and a half miles? That'd be pretty exhausting. I've been on a few all-night excursions, and it makes you pretty exhausted at the end of that. But it was 16 and a half miles all night long, and notice how it says that he ascended. It was an uphill journey the whole way. It was an uphill march. For the entire 16 and a half miles. But then, when they come suddenly on these five armies, God begins to show up just like he had promised to Joshua in verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel. He shows up, he begins to deliver them just like he had promised that he would do. He killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Ezekiel. And Makeda. 
And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon. So by this point, Gibeah was, was a, a city that was a prized city because it had control of the passes, the important passes in the area near the mountains. The five kings who had come together, it tells us early in the chapter, that they were kings from the various mountain cities. They'd all come because this was an important city that the Israelites now had control of by this treaty. So they're coming to capture the city. Well, the Israelites begin to chase them because God begins to deliver them into his hand. And they begin to chase them, and they chase them up this path of Beth, pass of Beth Horon, which is about 2,000 feet in elevation above the city of Gibeah. So they're going up 2,000 feet, up on this pass, chasing them. That's another six, six and a half miles or something like this. You imagine Joshua and his army at this point has gone 22, 23 miles. They've been up all night long. They've been constantly going uphill. Now they've climbed to the top of this pass. And here they are on top of this pass. And look at what God does. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon. This is a very rocky, precipitous uh, pathway down. They actually have carved steps out in that part of the pass so that you can get down off of it. It's so steep. They're on this descent that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with a sword. God sends this massive storm to wipe out those who are trying to wipe out his people. He sends these massive hailstones that come, and as they're going down, there's hail coming down, they're falling. I don't know what all's going on, but it's complete victory for Israel. So if I'm Joshua at this point, and I have this promise of God, and I know that this is exactly what God said he was going to do. I would just be there on the past and I would be saying, God, thank you so much. You've won this battle. This is enough. Thank you, God. This is a beautiful day. Praise the Lord. He's delivered us once again. Hey, guys, let's go home. Why don't we just go home and, and get some rest? We've had a long day. We've had a long night. It's time that we get home. But Joshua As he stands there on the ridge, he begins to look off in the distance and he sees that the sun is beginning to dip on the horizon. And as he sees that that God is working this mighty victory, that the hail is coming down, that, that the army is being routed, he sees that there are still enemy soldiers out there. And he knows that if they don't complete this victory that these soldiers will rise to fight again, that they will come back because obviously they don't want peace like the Gibeonites want. They only want to crush Israel. And they will live to fight another day if he doesn't complete this battle. And so as he stands there on that ridge, he looks out, he sees the sun, he sees the moon. Joshua speaks to the Lord. Verse 12 continues, then Joshua spoke to the Lord. I love how it says it like that. Joshua spoke to the Lord. It sounds like when I walked into the lobby this morning and I I spoke to Ralph when I saw him standing there in the lobby. It just sounds like Joshua is speaking to, to somebody that he's really acquainted with, somebody that he knows well. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, 
stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. What? Maybe you've read this story before and so it's familiar to you. Or maybe you've never heard this story before, but either way, this sounds absolutely crazy. Sun stands still, moon stands still. Who prays a prayer like that? My prayers are more like, Lord, could you help me to have enough strength for today? Can you, can you help the, the gas in my car to last through Sabbath? Lord, can you make sure that I have, that I find my keys? Can you make sure that you take care of this problem or this relationship issue? I find that a lot of times I pray really little prayers. Not Joshua. As Joshua stood on that ridge and he prays this prayer, he says, God, I need more time. Stop the sun. Stop the moon in place. We need more time for this battle. And it continues, verse 13, So the sun stood still. The moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. What an incredible thing. One man standing on a ridge praying to the king of the universe saying, sun stand still, moon stand still. Talk about walking closely with God. Talking about having a close friendship with God, being able to say, hey God, I need some more time right now. And God gives you another 24 hours to finish the task that He's placed before you, the task that He's given you a promise that He will fulfill. What gives somebody the audacity to pray a prayer like that? What gives somebody the boldness to tell God what He should do with the sun or with the moon? You think about this miracle. This had to have been probably the greatest in physical proportion of all the miracles in the Bible. At a bare minimum, the earth would have somehow had to have stopped spinning for 24 hours. That by itself, the earth that's spinning over a thousand miles per hour, it would have had to stop the atmosphere. I've read on the NASA website that if just the earth suddenly stopped spinning and the atmosphere didn't stop spinning, that the winds of a thousand miles per hour would be so intense that it would immediately shear off all the different landforms and erode everything so that it would just become this flat ball because of the 1,000-mile-per-hour winds. You've been in a hurricane. You know that 100-mile-per-hour winds are intense, let alone 1,000-mile-per-hour winds. So the winds would have had to have stopped. The, The earth would have stopped rotating. Somehow the moon is held in place. The oceans are affected by the spin of the earth. So somehow the oceans would have had, had to been held in place. So many different things would have been had to be controlled by God at that point. The temperatures on the planet in order to keep things from freezing and things from overheating. God worked this incredible miracle for one man standing on a ridge who simply said, sun stands still and moon stand still. I want to walk that closely with Jesus, don't you? I want to have that kind of relationship with God that I can say, hey, God, I'm needing this right now. Will you do this for me today? How did Joshua have this kind of faith? What gave Joshua this kind of boldness? I've begun to realize something. In somebody's life, when you see a moment this momentous occasion in a person's life where they stand up for God, where you see an incredible victory for God, 
there is a long history in that person's life leading up to that point. You see, grand moments with God don't come in an instant. They come from a life of walking closely with Jesus. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, we catch one of the first glimpses of what Moses was, of what Joshua was like. Exodus chapter 33, in verse 7. Now, this is right after the golden calf. At this point, they haven't yet built the, the sanctuary as we know it with the Ark of the Covenant and all those different things. This is at the point where the people of Israel are wondering if God is going to totally reject them because they've built these two golden calves, they've totally broken his law, and they don't know that they should have any relationship with God. So Moses does something very fascinating in verse 7 of Exodus 33. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp. Where did he pitch it? Moses pitches his tent outside the camp. So let's say this is the camp of Israel. Moses takes it and he pitches it outside the camp. This isn't like the tabernacle which is built later, which is right in the very center of the camp. But this is pitched outside the camp. Continues and it says, far from the camp. You see that it's emphasizing something here. It was outside the camp. It was far from the camp. It wasn't right in the heart of the camp. It wasn't right there where everybody's going about their business and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Anybody who wanted to seek God would go and they would have to walk outside the camp. It was a little inconvenient. You didn't just stay in the camp, but you had to walk outside the camp and you had to go out to this tent in order to seek God. Now, it's interesting here when it uses the phrase to seek God, the Hebrew word there is a special form of the verb to seek. It's, it's an intense form of the word to seek. It's, it's used in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and t- verse 2, for instance, when it says that Saul was seeking the life of David. Think about that for a minute. Saul seeking the life of David. How intense was that seeking? Extremely intense. I mean, Saul was willing to pin his own son to the wall with a javelin in order to seek the life of David. He was willing to put anything out of the way, any hindrance, any possible thing that was in his way, he was going to move out of the way so that he could seek the life of David. Now, I don't encourage that kind of seeking in your life at all, but that's the type of seeking involved here. It's, a, it's an intense seeking. It's, it's, it's an unwillingness to let anything stand in the way. So here when Moses pitches this tent and anybody that seeks the Lord, it's anybody who is unwilling to let anything stand between them and getting to God would go out to this tent. That's the kind of intensity of seeking God that would take place in this tent that was far outside the camp. Jeremiah 29 and verse 13 says, If you seek me, you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart, when wholeheartedly you throw yourself into knowing me. So here, outside the camp, we have this tent pitched. 
Verse 8 continues, So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose. Each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Everybody in the camp, you know, when you're, when you're in the wilderness, you have to gather your firewood, you have to cook your, your meals. It takes a lot of work to be camping. All of them would suddenly pause all of their jobs that they were doing and they would say, hey, Moses is going out to that tent, the tabernacle of meeting. I believe it was because they wanted to know, was God still listening to their leader? Was there still that connection with their leader, even though they had sinned so greatly against God? And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, verse 9 continues, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose. There's about two million people there in the wilderness. All of them rise up and worshipped each man in his tent door. That is church right there. Two million people worshiping the presence of God. They're so thankful. They're so grateful that God is still communicating with their leader, that he's still giving the symbol that he is leading his people in spite of the mistakes that they've made. He's a God of mercy and grace. Verse 11 continues, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's a a beautiful verse. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Just think about that friendship, that closeness that Moses had with God. And the people were all witnessing it as they watched from their tents. They saw that Moses was having this close communion with God, that he walked very closely with God. But oftentimes I've stopped reading the verse at that point. Or I've passed over the next part of the verse. But verse 11 continues. And he would return to the camp. Moses would come back to the camp, and I imagine that at that point, everybody else would begin to go back about their business. Oh yeah, I needed to go grab the kindling. So they go and grab the, the kindling for the campfire, and they begin to skin the, the, the evening meal or whatever it was that they were cooking. They, they went about their business. But then verse 11 continues. But his servant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, He's a servant. He's a young man. He's the son of somebody important. Somebody not that important, really. Did not depart from the tabernacle. Joshua did not depart from the tent. And what did you go out to this tent to do? To seek God. Not just to pray to God and not just to you went out there because you intensely desired God with that intensity of heart that is seeking with all of your heart not willing to let anything stand between you and your objective of having God in your life Joshua a young man did not depart from the tent He just wanted to stay in the presence of God. He just wanted to be there in that place where Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. He just couldn't get enough of the presence of God. And so Joshua stayed in the tent. Can you imagine what that did for that young man? As he spent time in the presence of God, 
it radically changed his life. Joshua doesn't just stand up one day and become the leader of Israel just because God decided that he liked the name Joshua and he liked that individual. Joshua had intentionally been seeking the filling of God. He'd intentionally been seeking to have his character built from being in the presence of God. He had been intensely seeking a close relationship with God. He wanted what Moses had. And it's beautiful because in Joshua chapter 1, when God shows up to Joshua and gives him his, his marching orders for being leader of the children of Israel, he tells him to not fear. He says, I'm going to be with you just as I was with Moses. Meaning, I'm going to talk to you face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We're going to have that close fellowship. And then he goes on to say, but basically continue what you've been doing. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not let this book of the law that Moses gave you depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Continue to absorb this wisdom that has been given to you. Continue to enjoy my presence. Continue to spend time in my word. Meditating on who I am and what I've called you to in your life. Continue to take that time, Joshua, that you had when you were a young man. Continue to seek me with all your heart. Meditate on it day and night. And then he goes on to promise. He says, then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have success. There's power that comes from the presence of God. And so when we find Joshua standing up there on that ridge, when we see him looking out and seeing that a battle needs to be won this day, that there's got to be a further victory, and he speaks to his friend Jesus and tells him to hold the sun in its place, to hold the moon in its place. I need more time, God. It's not just in that moment that suddenly God decides to hear his prayers, but there has been a relationship that's been building relationships take time if you want to develop a relationship with somebody it's really difficult to do it without spending a lot of time in their presence but when you've become close to somebody you've spent a lot of time with them you know right away when you ask them for something what their answer is going to be by the time I asked Leah to marry me I knew what her answer was going to be now I I admire you men who are willing to go to a woman and ask her to marry you and you had no idea what she was going to say. <laughs> I don't have that kind of guts. I was quite confident by that point because we'd spent time together. We knew each other. I knew that she wanted to be married. And then I felt confident enough to come to her and say, will you marry me? And I knew what her answer would be. It's the same way with Joshua. Joshua had spent time with the father. He had spent time in God's presence. He'd been out in the tent. He refused to depart from the presence of God. And so when he said, God, stop the sun. Stop the moon. I need more time. He knew what the answer was going to be. He'd already heard from God that this was his mission for him. He'd already spent time with God in his presence. And he knew what God would do. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, recounting this story, page 509, it says this, the secret of success. You want to be successful in your life. We all want to experience success. We all want to have successful lives. The secret of success is the union of divine power with human effort. 
Joshua put a lot of effort in there. Don't get me wrong. This isn't to say that we're not to work hard for God. Those who achieve the greatest results are those who rely most implicitly upon the Almighty arm. The man who commanded, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon, is the man who for hours, don't miss that, the man who for hours lay prostrate upon the earth in prayer in the camp at Gilgal. The men of prayer are men of power. There's power when you have an ongoing, deepened relationship with God. You have power to pray in that moment of extremity when things are going wrong. You have power in that moment because you've already spent time on your face with God. You've already built that relationship. You've already taken the time that it, it is necessary in order to build that relationship. You think about Joshua there in the camp. Imagine his generals around him, the others, warriors, ready. They, they know that they're supposed to go out in this battle. They know that, that, that Gibeah is being attacked by these five kings. And here is Joshua on his face for hours before battle. Shouldn't he be drawing up battle plans? Shouldn't he be going about making sure that they have all of their swords sharpened, their spears ready to go? And I imagine they did those things too. But Joshua first spent time in prayer. And then men of prayer are the men of power. You might be thinking, well, that's great for Joshua. And I'm sure that God would show up like that if if we were about to be crushed by some oppressive force that was going to just come into church today and take us out. But my life is a little simpler than that. And God doesn't work in the same ways today. But friends... We live in a greater battle than Joshua does, did. We face a greater battle on a daily basis. Peter, right, writing to the church, said that we face an adversary who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. In Revelation, it says that the devil has come down with great wrath and rage against the people of God. We face a greater battle. In fact, Patriarchs and Prophets goes on to say, we are told of a greater battle to take place in the closing scenes of earth's history. Interestingly enough, Revelation also depicts hail coming down from heaven. When Jehovah has opened the armory and has brought forward the weapons of his indignation. Friends, we are on the verge of a greater battle. And today, this morning, I believe that God is wondering, is there Joshua's in this camp? Is there Joshua's who will say, I won't depart from the tent until I know that I have a closeness with God that will see me through any and any difficulty that I face. I won't leave the presence of God until I'm filled up, until I have the confidence to face life. I won't leave his presence and I'll invite him to go with me through every day. Is there Joshua's who will stand up today I imagine Jesus asking. I believe that he wants to do even greater things in the times that we're living in. In the book, Gospel Workers, page 255, it tells this amazing story about a lady who was talking, maybe it was over Sabbath lunch, about what it was that made a particular pastor so powerful. God's messengers, it says, must tarry long with him if they would have success in their work. The story is told of an old Lancashire woman 
who was listening to the reasons that her neighbors gave for their minister's success. They spoke of his gifts, of his style of address, of his manners. Nay, said the old woman, I will tell you what it is. Your man is very thick with the Almighty. Wasn't that the case with Joshua? He was thick with the Almighty. He'd spent time in the presence of God. He knew that when he said, sun stand still, moon stand still, that that was his friend he was talking to. He was thick with the Almighty, and he could talk to the Almighty in a way that things happened. I want to pray like that. I want to see God move like that. I want to walk that closely with God. It's interesting that throughout history, we find people who have faced battles, who were willing to take the time to seek God, and that gave them incredible confidence in the face of overwhelming odds. In the great Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, if you think about what took place in the 1600s, the 1700s, how it changed not only the religious uh, system that we, as a, in general, that we see in the powerful countries of this nation, but it also shaped the political landscape that we see today. The United States of America would not be a powerful nation today, I don't believe, if it wasn't for what took place in the Protestant Reformation. But men in the Protestant Reformation faced overwhelming odds as they went up against the established religion of the day, as they went up against the powerful kings and monarchs of the day. One of the most famous of these is Martin Luther. I love the confidence that Martin Luther expresses in his God. Martin Luther was somebody who was threatened based on the emperor, based on the pope. He was excommunicated with a, a papal bull, but the emperor also had, had decreed that, that Martin Luther could be put to death by anybody. So the only place that Martin Luther was safe was wherever the princes were protecting him. He had a few people protecting him, and the University of Wittenberg wasn't turning him over. But Martin Luther was a hunted man. He was a hated man, and any person walking down the street could stab Martin Luther, and they would think that they were doing God a favor. The, the church had called him a wild boar, using some terminology from the Old Testament, basically saying that he needs to be hunted, he needs to be killed. Listen to this letter that Martin Luther writes to his friend Melanchthon as Melanchthon is also facing this opposition. Grace and peace in Christ. In Christ, I say, and not in the world. Grace and peace, he writes to him. Paul writes similar things from prison. These people knew what it was to have confidence in God in the face of overwhelming circumstances. Grace and peace to you in Christ. Amen. I hate with exceeding hatred those extreme cares which consume you. Martin Luther had heard how Melanchthon was just burdened by the stress, by wondering if, if he was going to be able to make the arguments properly, if he was going to be able to, to write enough arguments to be able to, to win the day. If the cause is unjust, Martin Luther continues, abandon it. If the cause is just, why should we belie the promises of Him who commands us to sleep without fear? Christ will not be wanting to the work of justice and truth. He lives. 
He reigns. What fear then can we have? What fear then can we have, Martin Luther? How about the fear of the emperor's armies who can, are hunting you down? What about the fear of the Pope and all of the Catholic Church who has called you a wild boar and said that you should be hunted out and that any person can kill you and it'll be okay? What fear? How can you sleep in fear, Martin Luther, without fear, Martin Luther? How could you write something like that to Melanchthon? The book, The Great Controversy, picks up this story, page 210, and it tells us where this power came from that the reformers set their feet upon. It tells us where this power came from that turned the whole world upside down in the Protestant Reformation, that changed the world as we know it today. This is where that power came from. From the secret place of prayer came the power that shook the world in the Great Reformation. There, with holy calmness, the servants of the Lord set their feet upon the rock of His promises. During the struggle at Augsburg, okay, so the struggle at Augsburg was when the princes were going to make their confession. They were going to support Martin Luther. This day was acknowledged as one of the greatest days of all the Protestant Reformation. Everything hinged on this day. During that time when, when he was writing the confessions for the princes, he wasn't actually allowed to go to Augsburg himself, but he was the one who was writing these confessions that have been looked to for a generation since then. During that struggle at Augsburg, when Luther needed to, to understand these concepts better, when he needed to, to really grasp these things and write them out in detail, he did not pass a day without devoting three hours at least to prayer. And they were hours selected from those most favorable to study. Do you get that? It was from the secret place that the power came that turned the world upside down. Martin Luther had a lot of stuff to do. If you doubt that, It's interesting looking at different biographies and things written about him. He was a man who, between 1510 and 1546, preached 3,000 sermons. If you calculate that, that's nearly 100 sermons a year on average. Some, Some years, though, he preached right around this time of 1528. He was preaching about 200 sermons a year. You know, church at that time started at 5 a.m., What do you guys think? Should we start church at 5 a.m.? Church would start at 5 a.m. and for an hour, they would expound on an epistle, let's say. And then then later on, they'd have the late morning service at 10. And at 10 o'clock, they would preach on the Gospels. And then in the afternoon, they would have some teaching on the Old Testament. And then it says that Martin Luther would go to his family and he would hold family worship with them in the evening He had three kids, I think it was, and he would take the time to teach his own family. Then throughout the week, they would have morning services, they would have evening services. He wasn't the pastor of this church, but he spent a lot of time helping with the preaching at the church in Wittenberg. You see, he wasn't the pastor of the church because he was the chair of, he was the Bible professor, the chair of the theology department, basically. And as chair of that department, he had to teach classes, he taught Numerous classes on the Psalms, on Galatians, on Romans. Um, At the same time, he was also writing theological treaties. One author, John Piper, writes that he wrote biblical, homiletical, 
liturgical, educational, devotional, political, some of which have shaped Protestant church life for centuries. And all the while, while he was doing this, he was also translating the entire Bible into German. He carried on voluminous correspondence, for he was constantly asked for advice and counsel. He was constantly writing letters. Travel, meetings, conferences, and colloquies were the order of the day. All the while, he was preaching regularly to a congregation that he must have regarded as a showcase of the Reformation. This guy had a lot of stuff to do, and yet he was prioritizing time in the secret place. And yet, he knew that he needed to take three hours a day in prayer. This is not somebody who was just a monk who had nothing else to do. This is somebody who was, God was using to change the whole world. And yet he blocked out three hours a day in prayer to God. And that time with God, that time in the presence of God, led Martin Luther to pray such beautiful prayers. <clears throat> Great controversy continues and, and describes one of these prayers that was actually overheard, uh, it tells us in a, a, the great history of the Reformation by Diabne, that the secretary snuck up to Martin Luther's door. He had this little room that he was staying in during the Augsburg crisis. This secretary sneaks up to the door. He holds his breath, hoping that Martin Luther won't hear him. And he begins to listen in as this great man of prayer takes time in prayer. So listen to the prayer that he prays. In the privacy of his chamber, he was heard to pour out his soul before God in words full of adoration, fear, and hope, as when one speaks to a friend. I know that thou art our Father and our God, he said, and that thou wilt scatter the persecutors of thy children, for thou art thyself endangered with us. All this matter is thine, and it is only by thy constraint that we have put our hands to it. Defend us then, O Father. Isn't that beautiful? He was talking to his father. He had this intense trust that God would be with them, that God would see them through this intense difficulty. He knew that they could face this battle because he had spent time with God. He knew who God was. He'd spent time constantly reading the Bible. He knew the character of God. And when he approached God, he could approach his throne with boldness, asking that his father would defend them, that his father would work in the situation. He had boldness because he had closeness. He knew that he could ask for big things, because he knew who he was asking from. He had built a close relationship through much time in the presence of God. Sometimes we feel like time in God's presence can be wasted. But when we really think about it, how could it possibly be a waste to connect with the most powerful being in the universe who's promised that in Christ, you can do all things through Him who strengthens you. That He'll daily bear your burdens. That if you yoke up with Him, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That He'll give you rest. How could it be a waste of time? Or how could we not have enough time for it? In the book, Our High Calling, it says this course of action, talking about taking time aside to spend with God, may seem impossible to the human mind. I have not time, you may say. 
You don't understand I'm busy. I work long hours every day. I don't have time to be in the presence of God. But when you consider the matter as it really is, with eyes of faith, you lose no time. For when you secure the power and grace that come alone from God, you do not accomplish the work. It is Jesus who is the real worker. Without me, says Christ, you can do nothing, John 15, verse 5. When we spend time in His presence, we're yoked up with one who can do everything that we need in our lives. One who can accomplish all that concerns us. One who knows no difficulty that's too difficult. One who can stop the sun in its place. One who, if you feel like you don't have enough time to spend with God, think about it. Joshua asked for more time from God and he stopped the sun and he stopped the moon in its place. What will he do for you? And the things that you face. You may feel like, I don't have that 15 minutes. I don't have that hour today. That thoughtful hour to spend in the presence of God. But when you take that time, God promises you efficiency. He promises you wisdom. He promises that He'll show up and He'll accomplish the things that you're facing. It's worth it to do whatever it takes to be in the presence of God. To, like Joshua, not depart from the presence. To do whatever it takes to seek God with all your heart. To let nothing stand between you and a closer relationship with God. We're living in times that are very distracting. We're living in times where there are so many different things that vie for our attention. We live in times where it's difficult to carve out time. And yet I believe that God is looking for Joshua's to stand up today. People who will determine not to depart from His presence. People who will determine to seek Him with all of their heart. In the book Education, it says, an intensity such as never before seen is taking possession of the world. If you notice it, the world around us is becoming more and more intense. In amusement, in money-making, in the contest for power, in the very struggle for existence, there is a terrible force that engrosses body and mind and soul. But in the midst of all this maddening rush, God is speaking He bids us come apart and commune with Him. Be still and know that I am God. Many, even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. Not a pause for a moment in His presence, but personal contact with Christ. To sit down in companionship with Him. This is our need. It's about friendship with the maker of the universe. It's about taking time in His presence with confidence that He can accomplish the things that concern us in our lives. In my life, I remember thinking, I don't know how to take more time with God. I know that it's good to spend time with God in the morning, but I don't like waking up early in the morning. I don't want to spend that time really early in the morning. God convicted me about that a few years back. He began to remind me about how in high school, I would take two hours a day to practice basketball early in the morning. As I began to think about the hours spent in practice, you know, sometimes the practice didn't feel like I was becoming an amazing basketball player. Usually it felt kind of difficult. It felt long. It felt hard. 
But it made a difference today. I may not be the greatest basketball player, but if you'd seen how I played before, you would know that those two hours every morning made a vast improvement in my ability to play basketball. As I thought about my willingness to do that, God convicted me. He said, what? Why wouldn't you do that for me to build our friendship to, if you want to work for me, how much more do you need that time with me every day? So I committed to that and I began praying a prayer every morning, Isaiah 50 in verse 4. It says, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as a disciple. And I just began to pray, Lord, This is a promise for Jesus, and I believe that in Christ, you can do anything for me too. And so would you wake me up every morning? And you know, that's a prayer that if you sincerely ask for it, God's going to wake you up. You may be surprised by the time. Seriously. Sometimes it's going to be 3 a.m. Sometimes it's going to be 2 a.m. Sometimes it's going to be 5 a.m. Sometimes it'll be 6. But God will fulfill that prayer if you really ask him to. When he wakes you up, take time with him. We'll talk about more ways, maybe in our small groups and over the coming weeks, but take time in his presence. Not to check off a a checklist, not to just say, hey, I did my Sabbath school lesson for today, but to take that Sabbath school lesson and say, God, I want to know you through this Sabbath school lesson. To take that devotional book and say, God, I don't just want to read through this devotional book, but I want to know you like Joshua knew you. I want to love you, and I want to trust you like Martin Luther did. Take that time in his presence, and he will show up for you. You will find a closer walk with him. This morning, I just want to invite you to make a commitment to more time with God. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you've never spent time with God on a consistent daily basis before, and God is telling you today, hey, you need to block out some time every single day to spend in the Word, to spend in prayer, to spend in my presence. And you need to do whatever it takes to pull things out of the way in order to make sure that you do that. Maybe you've been spending 15 minutes a day, and today God's saying, how about 30? How about a half an hour? Maybe you've been spending half an hour and today God's saying, I think you could do a little bit more. We could come a little closer in that relationship. How about an hour of intimate communion with me? It may sound crazy, but if you're spending an hour today, it could be that God is calling you this morning to say, okay, it's time that you up that. I remember one Sabbath I was sitting in Andrews University Church and Dwight Nelson was making an appeal and he said, I want for you to consider doubling your time with God every day. Now at that time, I had made this commitment from the basketball experience and all of that to spend hours with God, and I thought, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not talking to me. He's talking to that person over there who spends five minutes a day with him. But God said, why don't you try me out? Test me and see. See if this can make a difference in your life. And that summer, I was going to be overloading on my seminary classes so that we could finish a a semester early. I was doing everything possible to get work done, and I was uh, teaching a basketball class and doing some other things with the youth. I had a lot of things on my plate, but I said, okay, God, it sounds crazy, but I believe that you are who you say you are. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to double these hours with you, and I'm going to spend more time with you. I'll tell you that that summer, 
was a beautiful summer. God showed up. He helped me to, to get done with those classes, to get good grades in those classes, to accomplish the work that needed to be done. But most importantly, he led me to fall more in love with him. He gave me greater confidence in him. He made me a nicer husband, somebody that's a little easier to live with. God wants to radically transform our lives, and he can only do it if we make ourselves available to him. So this morning, I just invite you, make a commitment for more time with Jesus, because this is the foundation As we come to God, like we learned last week, we know that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So why not take the time to seek Him more? Just invite you to bow your heads with me. Just to ask God in prayer what commitment He's wanting you to make, to deepen, to closen your walk with Him. There's nothing more important than to walk closely with Jesus. Father in heaven, I feel challenged this morning. Lord, as I read about men of old and I read about amazing prayers that have been prayed and I think about the littleness of my faith, I recognize that I want more. I want a closer walk with You, Jesus. I want a deeper fellowship with You on a daily basis. Lord, the times are too important for us to just go through the motions anymore we have to walk more closely with you father speak to our hearts right now in the silence of our own hearts impress us with the commitments that you are calling us to make to increase our time in your loving presence Thank you, Father, that in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That in pursuing you, we're pursuing the greatest joy we could ever have. Lord God, bless these commitments and continue to lead us to desire growth in our walk with you. To desire more, to seek you more wholeheartedly than we ever have before. Father in heaven, lead us to walk more closely with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.